Welcome to our special edition of History Notes entitled The Story of a Holocaust Survivor Part 1. This episode features Greensboro resident and Holocaust survivor Shelley Weiner along with others. We will hear from Shelley Weiner who experienced a horrific tragedy firsthand. We'll hear from scholars and we'll hear from many who are making efforts to commemorate the women who were lost during the Holocaust. I'm particularly speaking of Victoria Milstein, a local artist who is in the midst of erecting a monument dedicated to the women lost during the Holocaust. The monument dedicated to the women of the Shoah is entitled, She Wouldn't Take Off Her Boots. I'm Rodney Dawson, and please listen to this History Notes podcast. Ask your friends and family members to listen. Let us recognize the inhumanity and the courage, bravery, and strength many had to exhibit and muster in order to endure and survive that inhumanity. History works very hard to repeat itself, and that repetition relies on people to forget or be ignorant of the past. This monument, she wouldn't take off her boots, and this Greensboro treasure, Shelley Winter, are both dedicated so that we don't forget. And ever since then, I have been involved in Holocaust education. I speak to teachers all over the state, and we have workshops for teachers, and I was one of the people who was involved in starting the North Carolina Holocaust Council that is uh, supported by the state of North Carolina. Living in Greensboro, I find, you know, that it's a town that appreciates diversity, it appreciates other people from all walks of life. And so I think it's extremely important that this monument be here in Greensboro. And first of all, it's the middle of the state, so people from all over the state can come and and visit. And it's going to be an educational uh, project that will involve teachers and uh, college students. And and, uh, it's also a very good tie-in to the um, museum downtown, the at the Woolworth Museum, and uh, that talks about what happened to black people and uh, the the history of the sit-ins, and it all deals with hatred. It all deals with not being able to appreciate the differences in people. You're listening to Shelley Weiner, a Holocaust survivor. Shelley will later talk about how her mother hid her from the advancing Nazi army in the eaves of a local farmer's barn in Revna, Ukraine in 1941. Shelley Weiner was only four years old but already subjected to the horrors man can perpetrate onto man under the banners of intolerance, hatred, and propaganda. If you didn't catch it, I did say this happened in Ravna, Ukraine, which is in the western part of the country. And just as they faced the invasion of a foreign army in 1941, this nation is facing the same today in 2022. What you've just heard was Shelley Weiner starting our conversation, talking about a monument that will be erected in the Bower Park in downtown Greensboro. A monument that is dedicated to honoring the memory and sacrifices of women who were lost during the Holocaust. The monument 
Women of the Shoah, once erected, will be the first and only such monument in the state of North Carolina. Shelley Winter very poignantly and eloquently invoked the similarities of this monument to that of our fellow museum, the International Civil Rights Museum, and how both are symbols of fights against hate and intolerance and illustrate the struggle for justice in an unjust world. And Shelley Wiener reminds us of how appropriate it is that the monument rests in Greensboro, the Gate City, and how discriminated, marginalized, and undervalued communities that have called Greensboro home have made it one of the most illuminated beacons of social justice that this world has ever known. So as you listen to this special edition of History Notes, the story of a Holocaust survivor, I think you'll find how this story can relate to the stories of countless others and numerous other eras, and that it's no accident that Greensboro can call this story home. I'm Rodney Dawson, and this is History Notes. We thought it important to give historical context to what Shelley Weiner, her cousin, mother, and aunt went through in World War II in their attempt to escape the Nazi advance. So we spoke with Professor Emeritus, Dr. David Crow from Elon University. In the fall of 1940, uh, Adolf Hitler began planning for the invasion of Russia the following year. He had two problems. The first, of course, was the size of the Soviet Union, its population. And secondly, it's what the Nazis called the Jewish question. Uh, a week before Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, the Nazis and the Soviets created a pact. And part of that pact was dividing Poland into two parts. The Germans took the eastern, western part and the Soviets got the eastern part with its large Jewish population. The Germans took their part and created something called the general government, which they considered their racial laboratory. Four of the six death camps that they would open beginning in late 1941 and on into 1942 were located in the German parts of occupied Poland. German policy towards Jews going back to the not Hitler coming to power as chancellor in 1933 was essentially in Germany for the first six years of the Nazi rule was to simply rip the Jews from the fabric of German society. Understanding how the Holocaust affects Jewish families is not something I can experience, particularly because I'm not Jewish. So what I've learned is that while I and all of us can and should empathize with that experience and other similarly affected cultural groups for that matter, but to get a true sense, we need to hear from members of the Jewish community. And with that being said, I met and asked Professor Mitchell Summers, who works in the theater department at Elon University and was a longtime executive director of Community Theater of Greensboro. He's now retired. But we met at a Seder that I recently was invited and attended, had a beautiful time and met some wonderful people. And I met Professor Summers. We talked the whole time. He helped explain the meaning of Seder and its traditions. We hit it off, had a cup of coffee a couple of weeks later, and I asked him to talk about the Jewish experience and how families were and are affected by the Holocaust. And coincidentally, we'll have an entire History Notes episode of our conversation with Professor Summers 
Um, but here's a portion for this Holocaust education podcast. Well, you know, Ronnie, uh, Jew- Jews are different than most in that it's almost like we're a religion and we're a race and we're an ethnicity and we're a nationality. So it's a little different, right? Usually, you know, you're black and you're Christian or you're Latino and you're, uh, you know, uh, Buddhist, but uh, Jews kind of are a little bit of both. So um, ethnically, uh, uh, I was very Jewish from the moment I was born. It was very clear to me. Every Friday night was Sabbath at my grandmother's house. Every Jewish holiday was a big thing for the family get together. But I noticed as I got older, we didn't go to synagogue. We didn't pray, but we were very Jewish, you know. And so I remember when I was a young teenager, I was very close to my grandfather, especially that my father left when I was young, so he was sort of my father figure. And I asked my grandfather, I called him Shoppy, because he had a plumbing shop, and he was in the shop, we all called him Shoppy. I said, Shoppy, I said, why are we not religious? And he said, we were. He says, your grandfather, your great-grandfather was a rabbi. Your great-uncle was a cantor. He says, but when Hitler and the Nazis killed my whole family, he said, I lost faith in God. So he said, I still try to live the way my father wanted me to live, but it's very hard for me to believe in God after happened to them. So finding God and spirituality and a religious life really happened for me here in Greensboro. But being Jewish and being very proud of being Jewish and being very connected to Judaism, that was with me from birth. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. It just taught me. That's uh, Professor Mitchell Summers. We'll hear from him uh, later as well. Appreciate his uh, input there. but let's go back to our conversation with Dr. Crow, and he is talking about the expansion of the German army in 1938, and uh, which led to the final, what was called the final solution. And as you're listening, I'm wondering if parallels exist today to what happened in the late 30s, uh, early 19, mid 1940s with World War II. They also followed these policies when they took over Austria in the spring of 1938 and Czechoslovakia in 1938-1939. When they got to Poland, they adopted a new policy, which was ghettoization. And they followed through with this to some degree when they, they took over Western Europe in 1940. By the time you get to late 1940, the Germans, the Nazis consider themselves invincible. They've taken over or conquered all of these countries in Central Europe, much of Western Europe. And they now feel as they face one of their, their, their second biggest problem in dealing with the Soviet invasion, the large Jewish population. If you add the Jews in the Soviet occupied part of Poland with the number of Jews in Russia itself, you've got four and a half to five million Jews. They don't, they, for two reasons. Number one, they can't handle this issue. And secondly, they've reached the point of arrogance that they feel that they can now begin to talk about a final solution. Ghettoization is not going to work. 
They never cared for ghettoization because it was too expensive to run the ghettos. Thus they chose to starve Jews to death. It came before dawn in the Ukrainian capital. Not only the sounds of an invasion finally begun, but notice of a world order being turned on its head. Air raid sirens sounded in Kiev on and off. Like so many, she and her family tried to escape, but there was nowhere to go. I wonder if there are folks in similar situations to Shelley Weiner back in 1941. And although she was only four years old, she understands what it's like to be uprooted from your home, to run and seek shelter because of a hostile invading army. And if found, you could be in prison or worse, death. And I look at Eastern Europe today, and if 80 years from now, there'll be four-year-old boys and girls telling similar stories about how they had to hide in the eaves of a barn or the bunker underground from invading armies in Eastern Europe. Let's listen to Shelley's story. I was born in a town called Rubna in the Ukraine in 1937. When I was four years old, the Nazis came into our town and they uh, collected 17,500 Jews and shot them in a forest called Sosanka. My entire family was killed. Uh, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandfather. My mother and I were able to get to this village where my aunt lived. And she had a farmer who was a friend of hers, lived next door. And we begged the farmer to hide us. But it was very dangerous for non-Jews to help Jews. They would be killed, their entire family would be killed, and they, you know, they were very hesitant to hide people because not only that, their, uh, their neighbors would say. But this young, uh, this farmer had a, young, a daughter and a son who were still living at home. The Nazis could not have done their work that they did and fight a war without the help of the local population. And he had a son who was 18 years old. And what the, the Nazis did is they would throw uh, out pamphlets in the villages and ask them to come to town and do some work, but they never told them what the work was going to be. And so this uh, young man with a group of his friends went into town well, they got there just as the Nazis were shooting. It was uh, all the Jews in Radna, and uh, they were horrified by what they saw. Their job was to collect the bodies that had not gone in, into the trenches that they had dug and to you know, throw them in there. And so they ran away through the woods back to the village and on the way back, they decided to form a partisan group that would 
do havoc with the Nazis and Germans, you know. And this young man arrived home as my mother was pleading with the farmer and his wife to help us. And he was the one that convinced his father that he needed to do that. Well, the farmer created a hiding place for us up in the barn. And it was just at the eaves of the barn at the back of it. We had uh, space to lie down and sit up. There was a little, like a, it's not a window, I don't know what you call it, but anyway, where we got our air. And uh, this is where we spent about 20 months. We had one set of clothes, uh, hot and cold. It was very terrible. I once froze. They thought they lost me. And um, we had to keep quiet. I was four. My cousin was five. We were right at the edge of the woods, and there were a lot of activities, and the Nazis would come into the villages looking for Jews. As the German army advanced, they had to deal with what was seen as the Jewish problem. The part of Poland that was occupied by the Germans held a large number of Jews, which posed a challenge that needed containment for many reasons, but primarily because of hatred and a desire to remove them from society. Initial attempts included outright killings, which forced many in the occupied territories of the Nazi advance to flee, much like what Shelley Wiener is depicting. Ghettos were also formed to house the captured Jews, but this would prove to be too expensive and laborious, or perhaps not expedient enough. Soon what was deemed as the final solution became the answer which would usher in the murders and other cruelties committed at concentration camps throughout Europe. Dr. David Crow now talks about how procedurally the killings were carried out. I should warn you, this can be hard to hear, but it does speak to the tremendous resolve held by those subjected to such atrocities. In early 1941, Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, issues a call for volunteers to join special Einsatz action squads. They later become known as the Einsatzgruppen. They were flooded with volunteers who saw in joining these units a step up the ladder professionally in the Nazi movement. So much of what drove Nazi killing was professionalism. Yes, there was the racial hatred, but these were opportunists who deeply embraced the Nazi movement and did whatever was necessary to further their careers. Those who were selected for training for the Einsatzgruppen were taken to special bases and they were trained in, they sort of clouded really what it was all about, but anybody in the know in the SS or the SR knew exactly what they were for. It was to sweep in behind German military units as they went into Russia. And as they came into shtetls and villages and towns, they would simply round up and murder Jews. 
From late June 1941 until the end of December 1941, the had murdered over 500,000 Jews. In late July, less than a little more than a month after the invasion of Russia, and for the Germans, it was going swimmingly well. They decided they murdered this, these operations in the field. They're not secretive. They're messy. They're psychologically problematic for some of the killers. And so the Nazi leadership decides to issue a special directive called the Enlosung, the final solution. By the fall of 1941, they begin to experiment with met various methods of death. When we get to the murders that look pl took place in Lipia from the 15th to the 17th of December, 1941, a month earlier at Gelmno, which is in Western German occupied Poland, the Germans have begun to experiment with gas fans. By 1942, they're opening the five other death camps. They're shifting. And so what took place at Lipia sort of marks an tur important turning point. It doesn't mean the Reinsatzgruppe are gonna go away. By the time we get to the spring of 1942, the death camps are being opened. But the Einsatzgruppe are still operating. They're coming back around this earlier territory they had seized, finding hidden Jews. In 1944, they're used to go back to these killing spots, dig up bodies and burn the evidence. Many of the commanders of the Einsatzgruppen were well-trained German lawyers. They knew that they were committing war crimes. And in 1944, wedged as they are between the Allies and the Germans, they're beginning to think about war crimes trials. What took place at Libya actually is to the north of the city, about eight miles at Scatter Beach. Why? Lipia lies 600 miles south of the Arctic Circle. The weather was brutally cold. Um, winds off the Baltic. The ground was frozen. They couldn't dig pits at Lipia. So they went north to the beach. And it's thick, big, thick, grainy, gray sand. Very thick. And a few days before, the SS came in and the SA and they dug, personally dug this long pit. They were so good at this. They had been doing this for six months. They were masters at mass murder. They were totally efficient. And they, were, if you can say this, it's, it's a gruesome thought, but they were artists at mass murder. They were so good at it. So they came and knew exactly how to measure the pit. They knew exactly how to build sort of a barrier using the sand to block actually what was taking place. They even built uh, a stepway below the mound. They would murder in groups of 20. They would drive people into truck. They would about almost 2,800 people were murdered during that three day period. They were brought in by trucks. They were male and female at different times. They would put them in a nearby barn. And then as with each episode of murder, they would then bring 20 out at a time. The little shelf on one side of the pit could only hold five or six people. Across the pit, 
And this is this is this is how they did things. Let's say, for example, because we have there was a, a an SS non-com officer Stott, who had a small what we call a submarine camera. It had been made for the submariners. I think he probably got it from the nearby German naval base. And taking pictures like this was frowned upon. They 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 they, they were this supposed to be secret. They did not want Germans going back to Germany and showing this to their families or things like that. So this was all highly secretive. Of the eight or nine shots that he made of, of, of the mass murders, none of they're all shot at a distance. You can tell that he was probably wearing a great coat and probably hid this camera and just from a distance shot a very good camera. The one the Nazis when they did that, that they wanted to make sure that when they murdered someone in this, in, in, in this firing squad scenario, that they were dead. They didn't want people having to go back through the pile of dead bodies and have to shoot them in the head if they were still moaning. So if there were six victims on this sand shelf, they would have 12 shooters, two riflemen per victim. And the, the, and the what what and we know not only from the photographs about this, but we know from war crimes trials after. He's even mentioned at Nuremberg, but we also have other war crimes trials. And I apologize for the gruesomeness of it, but I think it's 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 important to understand, because the other part of the thing it's really important to understand is the issue of collaboration. There is no way the Germans in whatever part of Europe you're talking about, could have killed two thirds of the Jewish population of Europe using Germans alone. They're fighting a war on two fronts. So there's going to be extremely active collaboration all over Nazi occupied Europe when they're murdering Jews, Roma, the handicap or whatever. During a sit-down with Professor Mitchell Summers, he speaks directly to how his family was affected. Yeah, I had a few things I wanted to show you. Um, this one, it's very precious. Uh, this is more like in the 30s. This is after my grandfather left already, and he had a picture of his family. So it's his mother and his father and his brothers and his sisters. The one that is really much more tragic for me, but special, is this one because this was shortly before they were all killed. So this was um, back in, it was Poland and then became Ukraine. Uh, and what's kind of cool about this is I've explained to you before, this isn't really part of the picture. That's my grandmother, my grandfather, my mother when she was a little girl. But when my grandfather's family perished in the Holocaust, he had a New York photographer sort of superimposed. So he had a picture with the family. But as tragic it is, as it is, uh, they were all killed with the exception of his, um, his, his brother here, Gustav Getzel, they called him. He escaped into the, the Nazis marched into the village and they took all my grandfather's family into the forest and they made them dig their own graves. So they didn't even know exactly what they were doing. They just gave them all a shovel. They all dug a grave and then made them lay down and they covered them in dirt and killed them that way. And it was explained to me, they went there, um, they were so cruel that they were saying, you're such a low 
person. We're not even going to waste ammunition on you and make it a quick death. Or not even going to set you on fire. It's a pain. But a quick... So it was a very painful and horrible death to lay down in the hole that you dug and then be buried alive. When that happened, this brother, uh, Getzel, he ran into the forest. They lived right near a forest. He eventually made his way into Russia and joined the Russian army to fight the Nazis. This brother, where is he? Um, this brother, his name will come to me as we'll talk in the moment. I'm on the spot, I can't think of it. Uh, Hersch, Hersch was his name. Uh, he felt, it was just his Jewish name, like uh, Herschel, you know. Uh, he uh, found a Christian family that took him in sort of like the diary of Anne Frank and they hid him. Uh, we call those Christians, you know, the righteous ones. When you talk to Jews about people who uh, hid Jews uh, during the uh, Holocaust, you call the Christians the righteous ones because this was an incredible uh, uh, feat of bravery because you knew as a Christian, A, you didn't have to do it, and B, if they found out that you did it, they would not only kill you, but they would kill your entire family. So for somebody to sacrifice their own life and the life of their wife and their children to save a Jew, this was, this was an incredible feat of bravery. Shelly, I know Shelly very, like the, like the people that helped, kept Shelly Weiner and her family. Uh, these are the righteous ones. You've been listening to History Notes, a special edition, the story of a Holocaust survivor. We've been talking with Shelley Weiner, born in Revna, Ukraine in 1937. And at the age of four in 1941, she was in the midst of World War II and an advancing army searching to do her and her family harm. While the remainder of her family was killed by the advancing Nazi army, and aided by collaborators. Shelley's mother and aunt, both young ladies, robbed of their innocence, hid Shelley and her five-year-old cousin for 20 months. Dr. David Crow helped share the narrative of what it was like in Europe in the early 1940s during the war, and why Shelley Weiner, her small remaining family, and those like them had to flee their houses and the land that they called home. Shelley is now a citizen of Greensboro, and she's made it a mission to teach Holocaust education so that we never have to repeat it. This has been part one. When we resume for part two of History Notes, the story of a Holocaust survivor, we'll hear about what Shelley and her family did when the German army found out where they were hiding, how they had to escape into the woods and survive while also hearing bombs exploding in the night. We'll also talk about the incredible resiliency of such an incredible people and how that resiliency will be symbolized right here in Greensboro to represent the faith and strength it takes to fight and never give up. The strength that can be found in us all through the women of the Shoah. That's part two of History Notes the story of a Holocaust survivor.